Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we begin? Bless, O Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day since we're together. We might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? On Tuesday evening, Craig and I watched the movie It's a Beautiful Nay in the Neighborhood, released just a few months ago. It's a fabulous story of a reporter's assignment to write an article about Fred Rogers. But the plot is about how Fred Rogers changed his life. One of the clear and consistent messages of this dear film is that there are ways when handling difficult and painful feelings, that we can do so without hurting ourselves or others. Given the events of our days, the brokenness of our nation, so divided and broken by racism, the struggle to find our feet with this COVID-19 wouldn't you just love to have a neighbor like Fred Rogers? How are we going to make it through these difficult days without hurting ourselves or hurting others? I can't help wondering if we're going to find the kind of mutual respect caring and compassion, even the patience and the will to do whatever it takes to be real neighbors. Frankly, there are days when I have my doubts. And that's exactly why I love this scripture. Matthew says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. And without flinching, he adds, but some doubted. From the very beginning, among those closest to Jesus, there was doubt. In this otherwise transcendent, triumphant moment, when Jesus is giving his last instruction to the disciples, the scripture we call the Great Commission, there are some 
who do not really grasp or trust what has gone on in front of them. But some doubted. We might be tempted to think that the disciples doubted Jesus himself, but may I remind you, the scripture doesn't say that. Could they have doubted their place among the other disciples? Could they have doubted their worthiness to carry such a profound message of love and compassion when they struggled to get there even with each other? Maybe some doubted their ability to live the same kind of sacrificial life Jesus had lived in front of them. Perhaps, perhaps rather, they doubted their own stamina in light of such an open question, such an enormous one. To make disciples, could they do that? This message had cost Jesus his life. I wonder if the nature of doubt is left open for us in this scripture as a question. So that doubt of Jesus, doubt of selves, doubt of our righteousness, doubt of any ability, means that doubt of any kind is okay. Is doubt, after all, anything more than the examination of all things important, keeping us humble instead of arrogant, keeping us searching for understanding as our actions and opinions are shaped and planned? Doubt is not presented here as an obstacle to discipleship, but as a real part of discipleship from the very beginning. For if some who were there and actually witnessed the experience of the risen Christ and who gathered on that mountain to worship and to hear him speak, and they still doubted, well, doesn't that leave room for the rest of us? Doubt, my friends, is not a dirty word. Matthew uses it only twice in his gospel here and in chapter 14, where Jesus walks on water to join the disciples in their boat. The disciples are terrified in the storm as he approaches, and Peter pops up on seeing Jesus and asks that Jesus command him to come to him. You know the rest of the story. Peter sinks. Jesus immediately reaches his hand out to save him, saying, You of little faith, why do you doubt? Doubt here is used as a verb, meaning to hesitate or to sit on a fence, literally to stand in two places. In this context, doubt isn't 
such a, as much a character flaw as it is a recognition that it leaves one straddling the fence. It's human, but it's not a place to live. Barbara Brown Taylor in her reflection on this scripture says, and why shouldn't the disciples at this point in their lives struggle with doubt? Why shouldn't they have a foot in one camp of belief and one camp of doubt? Not one of them had witnessed the resurrection, not even the women who reported on it. Like Peter, the identified doubter in Matthew, some are hesitant to step out onto the water with no proof that the surface is going to hold. Yet there they are, all of them, worshiping anyway, accepting the risk of devoting themselves to something that makes their knees wobble. Now, is that hypocrisy or faith? Does the existence of doubt in the worship of Jesus mean that something's wrong? Or does it mean that something is right? That when people with no idea how deep the water really is are willing to step out into it anyway, trusting that even in their doubt they cannot be separated from the one who loves them, the one true God. Faith isn't as much a lack of doubt as it is a willingness to step into the deep when you can't see the bottom. My friends, because even when they wrestled their faith, the most amazing thing happens. Jesus decides to give them a job. In the full awareness that these disciples are still learning, they're still growing, they are flawed and often bumbling, he's going to give them a massive job. And what is it? To go and make disciples of nations, baptizing them into the company of motley numbskulls and cowards and squabblers, teaching them about Jesus so that together when they worship, they become a family that is blessed to wrestle their faith together. Disciples are called to create a complex family, learning from grace how to serve and to love one another to change the world. Don't forget that this difficult job description has Jesus asking them to teach others to obey everything that he has commanded. Which, by the way, is extremely hard. And it gives us every reason to doubt our ability to do it. When was the last time you enjoyed turning the other cheek when attacked? 
How about going the second mile when the first one was neither recognized nor appreciated? How about being asked to hand over your shirt and, oh, by the way, your coat too, if it's demanded and needed of you? Don't forget that we're asked to give to all who ask, whether or not they deserve it, need it, or will use it appropriately. After all that, we are to love all God's people, which has nothing to do with liking them. This love is very expensive. And while we're at it, don't forget we're asked to love our enemies as well. Last but not least, neighbors and strangers alike are to be welcomed into our community of mutual love. My guess is that there are some days when we're up to it and some days when we're not. I was able to watch a documentary this week about the imam and the pastor, Imam Ashafi, oh, excuse me, Asifa, excuse me, and Pastor Wu Ye are religious leaders in Kanduna, a city in northern Nigeria. Today they are working with warring religious militias to resolve their conflicts peacefully. But they didn't start out as peacemakers. Ten years ago, the imam and the pastor were mortal enemies, absolutely intent on killing one another in the name of religion. In 1992, their violent interreligious conflict broke out in Kanduna State, where Christians and Muslims fought each other in the marketplace, destroyed each other's crops and stores, attacking each other's families. Both the imam and the pastor paid an enormous price. The imam lost two brothers and his teacher. The pastor lost his right hand. After this event, both of them dreamed of revenge. And it was then that a mutual friend came to them and took both of them by the hand, brought them together and said, the two of you can pull this nation together or you can destroy it. Do something. It was over the next few years that they came to have a mutual respect for each other. And the two men created the Interfaith Mediation Center in which it's a grassroots religious organization to bring Christian and Muslims together. They now have 10,000 members reaching into the militia and training the country's youth, as well as the women, religious figures, and tribal leaders to be peace advocates. Under their leadership, these warring Muslim and Christian youth are now rebuilding the churches 
they destroyed during the war and the violence. They had plenty of hatred to fight. And so do we. Hatred and racism are tearing us apart. We've broken, faithful, flawed, and doubting people that today are called to a choice. We can pull our community together, or we can be a part of its destruction. It's no wonder that some doubt, no wonder that some of us do. This big, hairy, audacious job description to go into all the world with the purpose of bringing about the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven is nothing less than stepping off into deep water trusting that God will save us. Thanks be to God, there is great good news to be found within this text for the weary, the broken, or the doubtful. The most important part of the Great Commission is this. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. With the Spirit's outpouring of love upon us at Pentecost, God is offering an unconditional promise to walk into this unpredictable and beautiful world, broken and healing with us. I'm not always sure that we recognize the enormity of this promise. The exalted Christ does not say, I'm going to come later at the end of history after an immense period of time, an absence. Jesus promises to be a powerful presence in the midst of ongoing history. Yoked to the disciples of every age, dwelling in their midst through times of grace and times of crisis, feeding them with the richest promise, I am with you always. I am with you always. I am with you always. Christy DeVries met with our church staff this past Tuesday morning and shared a very delightful, helpful image to help us keep ourselves grounded in these difficult and uncertain days. The image was of a hot air balloon. To keep the balloon from floating away, there are ropes tied to weights that keep the balloon grounded. She said, what we have to do is identify the things that keep us grounded. She asked us to identify those places of grounding, uh, family, colleagues at work, friendships, and for both Christy and me, it's our gardens. But the surest anchor of all 
is this forever promise of God's presence with us. For every person, believing or doubting, standing strong or crumbling, Jesus' promise to be with us is sure. So in this unprecedented, tumultuous time, let's take a deep breath. Let's breathe and remember our grounding. I'm so grateful to stand still for a moment in the words and promises of Christ. I'm so grateful for the powerful urging of Jesus to be about what matters most. But even more than that, I'm grateful that Matthew names the truth, that everyone was there together to worship there on that mountain. Both those who were of faith and whose faith was firm and those who struggled with doubt, all of them were there to worship. And whether we believe with certainty or not in any given time, it should not matter. It must not matter. For we belong to this gathering of God's people. We've been called to go. Make disciples that look like Jesus, that act like Jesus, knowing that the promises of God's presence is always with us. And if we can't breathe and simply remember that, then we can name our doubt and slosh our way into the deep, murky waters of the day with the sure and certain promise that we are not alone. We will get through this time, and by God's grace, bringing with us a blessing. God is with us. And that's no small promise in the job description we've been given. It is therefore no surprise, my friends, that on the very night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took this bread to seal the promise. And he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and having blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink it when you're together in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. 
Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ present with us, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast together at his heavenly banquet. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of him. The cup of salvation poured out for you. Drink it in remembrance of him. Let's pray. It's so easy, Lord, to forget how close you are, to forget how not to hurt ourselves and to hurt others. Be so close to us, we pray that our awareness is of your presence with us, whether or not we can feel it in the moment, whether we doubt our ability or our strength. For the gift of this blessing of your presence, your life among us, we give you thanks today and always. Amen.